The fact that we can gaslight the American people like we did with COVID, like we did with gender fluidity, like we did with all sorts of other things that we started to uncover during the pandemic is just wrong. Some of you, most of you are, are parents, your grandparents. What do you want to leave this country as in the future? And if it truly is that, that the American people want to vote for a, a communist nation, then let them freely vote for it. But make the system transparent, which it is not. And you can't outvote a machine. You just can't. The testimony of concerned citizens and poll workers in Maricopa County regarding the stolen midterm elections is an important historical record for future generations of Americans. To say concerned citizen after concerned citizen took the podium with passionate pleas to the county's board of supervisors in an attempt to reverse the decision that had already been made even prior to that meeting to certify a faulty election. As you just heard from Joe Altman testifying at the top of the segment, people who know computer systems, someone who knows computer systems, as much as 40% of the voting machines in Maricopa County were inoperable on election day. The printers didn't print. The tabulators didn't tabulate. The machines wouldn't process the ballots. The voting machines didn't connect to the internet. Wait, what? But they told us they don't connect to the internet, right? Let's just take a listen to this man. On the 8th, we arrived for our shift at 5.30 a.m. When we started our equipment check, none of the site books would connect to the server. We couldn't even access the time clock to punch in. These are the machines that don't connect to the internet, but they wouldn't connect to the internet, so we couldn't, we couldn't start our day. It seems nothing went right in Maricopa County on election day. There were lines of people wrapped around the block. And yet, despite all of this, the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors okayed the election results as planned. However, in Cochise County, they refused to certify the election results and are putting it off until December 2nd. And right on cue, Democrats and Katie Hobbs immediately filed lawsuits against Cochise County. And look who's behind it. It's a familiar face, Mark Elias. It's almost like Mark Elias had a lawsuit already prepared just in case the county in Arizona decide, decided to or dared to question the election. Not to mention Politico already had an article on the lawsuit ready to go with quotes from Mark Elias in it. The whole uniparty machine is pushing back against citizens fighting for a remedy to this rigged election because as Joe Altman testified, it's not just about stealing one election. It's not stealing an election. It's not putting someone in a position of trust. It's having the ability to steal things such as increase taxes or have ballot measures. It, there's much more at risk than just the person that you put into a chair. People should have confidence in the system. And joining me now is Joe Ullman himself. He's the host of the Conservative Daily Podcast. Joe's also a tech expert who was one of the first people to sound the alarm on the vulnerabilities of our voting machines here in the United States. It's good to see you, Joe. I, I listened to your what you said over and over, and there were so many other people with such passion and love for our country and for their state of Arizona, pleading with Maricopa County to not do what was already a foregone conclusion by the time you all showed up yesterday morning. Yeah, so the hearing was supposed to be an opportunity for people to redress their grievances and to talk about the evidence that they were willing to testify to in the future. But that didn't seem to matter to the, the the board. They they listened to people intently and then decided, hey, 
despite all the evidence that shows that there was a disenfranchisement of voters, that the election uh, machines are not transparent, that it doesn't follow the same path. I mean, no one really talked about the pathway of voting and what we saw in the irregularities of how votes were actually recorded and and uh, um, and uh, reported to the people. But there, everywhere you look inside the machines, it it tells a tale of the fraud that exists not in just the disenfranchisement. That's one part of it, but the machines themselves. And it's as if it's kabuki theater, and you show up to vote. And your votes aren't counted. Nobody's votes are counted if it doesn't align with the outcome that has been predetermined by a select group of people on both sides of the aisle. Yeah, absolutely. And like like you said, we're really focused on the fact that they broke down and that a lot of people didn't get a vote. They stood in line, but also just the results don't really line up. And what was interesting is to see uh, we've talked to a couple other experts before over the last couple of weeks and how they feel that they were able to water down the same day votes with the with the slow the slow counting, the slow reporting. Have you learned anything more at this point about exactly maybe more that process with the machines? You know, I've talked before about the preponderance of evidence, like one any one piece of evidence does not necessarily state that there's fraud but if you put all the evidence together it is the smoking gun it puts together everything except for the mechanism by which the the fraud was perpetrated but the more we learn about things like bags and trucks going back and forth from the tabulation center uh to run back why would that happen after counting has been has been recorded why were they removing and adding uh products or bags or whatever they were doing inside of the tabulation center between runbeck and them why would they be doing that why would big trucks have to show up beyond that why did it take them 10 days to tabulate it when there's only 7 million people total in arizona yet there's you know 30 million people in in florida or or, or texas you know it it just doesn't align with common sense and they think that we're stupid and and beyond thinking that they're stupid they think that we're that we're somewhere along the line going to just give up. We're going to just walk away from this and say, "All right, we we relent. We're we're slaves, and uh, we'll just you know just tell us we're slaves, so we can go back to doing what we were doing um, and just living a life playing our Xbox." And you know what? It, because they know that a lot of people do move on. A lot of the news outlets who might have even covered this for a short time during the last couple of weeks are starting to move on to other topics. But as you see, the Arizona citizens are not ready to move on. Uh, here's my question, Joan. I think it's the most important question. We see with Mark Elias and Katie Hobbs, they were ready to go with a lawsuit immediately. They have the full machine in place, right? That involves the narrative, which is very important when you're talking about public opinion. So they have the corporate media ready with articles that have been pre-written. I know because I've sat beside these reporters and watched them pre-write things like this, ready to hit the send button. So it is a thing. It happens. But it seems like even after 2020 and everything we saw, and I know you were very involved in looking at what's hap what happened after 2020. I don't think we've seen Republicans evolve to to this kind of election, you know, running of elections. Maybe I'm wrong. So tell me, is there something going on on the ground in Arizona in regards to Carrie Lake's campaign or, you know, other Republicans in what is clearly a targeted effort against putting them in office? And it, were they ready or I mean, is there any remedy now, Joe? 
Yeah, you know, the, I think there is, but it's going to require the will of the people. You know, I, I got to tell you, I, I went to Arizona. I talked about having a protest and that the will of the people has to be heard and shutting down Arizona. And people were, they, it, it, that video that we created was seen over a million times. Uh, JP Sears did a video talking about the irregularities in Arizona and the fact that it's not a transparent election. That was seen over a half million times. And so the people really have an appetite to stand up, but then you have talking heads, and I'm just going to call them out. You have talking heads like Charlie Kirk, who comes out, and and others. By the way, there was a it, it was almost a concerted effort on the on the media side, or the I call it secondary layer, or the true media, uh, to instill fear in those people not to get out on the street of the capital of Arizona, not to let their voice be heard, not to put a bunch of pressure on the on the legislators. None of that happened. Because they came out and said, nothing to see here. So it's not just the media that was ready. It's the people that are supposed to be on our side that were ready saying, be fearful. It's another January 6th, false flag. Please don't go out there. Well, I spent five days out at the Capitol with, you know, on and off probably three to 500 different people. And it was peaceful. There was no problem. It was a redress of grievances. We didn't go get a... a, a a protest certificate or get any permit because we shouldn't have to have a permit. We shouldn't have to ask the government permission in order to make sure that we have a free and fair election. And yet we have people that are pundits, not just the media on the radical left and not just the people on the establishment with the uniparty, but you have people that are doing their biddings and trying to quell the voice of the American people. And I think that's the most disturbing part about all of this. We have the evidence, we have mountains of evidence, we understand the system infrastructure and architecture of the systems themselves. We understand that they share uh, the same nuances between the different companies. We know that the PE firms, the private equity firms, all own, the people are all the same people that own all these different voting machines and ballot companies like Cathedral, Stellar, and Runbeck. We know that they're all interconnected. We know that people are sitting in positions of trust at election offices. Husbands and wives are the ones that are actually working for or running these companies. So we have all of the evidence as the American people, but and we have the will to do it, but we keep being told, sit down, wait, even by Carrie Lake's uh, campaign. The only person that came out and talked about what we should do is President Trump. And it fell on deaf ears because everyone around him was like, oh no, we're going to have a big problem if you get out in the streets. I don't see another avenue of recourse. The judiciary is compromised. The legislative branch is covered with feckless cowards or people that don't stand for the people that are more interested in, in bowing down to lobbyist groups or special interests than they are the will of the people. And then when you start talking about uh, lawyers like Mark Elias and, and, and others, they built a mechanism that allows for them to use this lawfare in order to push down and suppress the voice of the people. This, what we're dealing with today is absolute communism. It's absolute fascism. And, and thank God we have people like Elon Musk that's willing to stand up and say, you need to hear what is happening inside of Twitter. And 62,000 people were, were permanently suspended by Twitter because they had conservative values and were talking truth. So I think that there is an opportunity, but Emerald, I have to tell you, the only way that we get to a place non-violently, because by the way, what comes next is going to be violent. If we do not get to a place where we redress the grievances of the people and we keep letting pedophiles out like they're doing in California and indoctrinating and grooming our children and opening the border and, and sex trafficking those people and allowing companies like this company that 
built-in pedophilia into um, their their marketing campaign. I don't know if you heard about that. But if we keep allowing this stuff inside of our community and funding those things that are used against us, and we don't use our voice, and we don't get out there, we're, we have no chance. We have no chance. We might as well just sit back and let them take the country because that's really what it's come down to. That's... Yeah, there was really there was really compelling testimony from a woman uh, of Venez who was born in Venezuela and suffered great consequences under communism. And she was pleading with uh, the board to do the right thing, and I I'm going to share that later in the show because I thought it was important to hear. And also, you know, Joe, when it comes to this, what's going on in Arizona, it's not just Republicans, but it's also independents and Democrats who feel like there's a big problem there. So there's real opportunity to fix it in Arizona particularly, and we're going to talk about that um, after we close out this segment. And you know, Joe, I have to share this because, um, and this is a little bit of an aside, one part of the narrative is painting people as who want to fix the elections as election deniers, these nefarious people, right, discrediting them. And that has been a major attempt against you since 2020. So I had a, I found this PR Newswire piece about you, and you'd been nominated by and was a finalist with an Erston Young Entrepreneur of the Year Award in your region. That's no small thing, Joe Altman. And I, you opened your testimony saying, you know, I am that conspiracy theorist, you know, embracing everything they call you, and how they just try to discredit you, but. You're an authoritative speaker on this, Joe Altman. We appreciate you being here. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I didn't get into this because I needed money. I want. I don't even particularly like being in the limelight, uh, but I built a company from a cocktail napkin to be one of the largest first-party data aggregation companies in the nation. I know what neural networks can do. I know what AI can do. I know what computers can do. And I know how you can hide the output or the input yeah. and the output. So. You know, I got involved in this because God put you on a path and I hate this path. I mean, I'll just be the, I'll be perfectly honest. I wish I would have shut my mouth, but I didn't have that option. I, I know that uh, when, yeah. when faced with the idea that we have to, we have to get to the end and we have to, we, we, we have to pursue truth. It's, it's a non-negotiable. So thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. And when it comes to Arizona, there seems to be a bipartisan agreement in regards to the debacle in Maricopa County. According to a new Rasmussen Report poll, Democrats think what happened in Arizona's Senate election was a major travesty. Republicans in Arizona say problems with the election in Maricopa County prevented many people from voting. When asked how likely is it that these problems affected the outcome of the Senate election in Arizona, 40% said very likely, 31% said some unlikely, 10% said not very likely, and 13% said not likely at all, 6% weren't sure. Now, when those same people were asked if they agree or disagree that this debacle isn't about Republicans or Democrats, this is about our sacred right to vote, a, a right many voters were sadly deprived of on no November 8th. 45% strongly agreed with that statement, 27% somewhat agreed, and 5% disagreed. 13% strongly disagreed, and 10% weren't sure. So joining us to break all of this down is the head pollster at Rasmussen Report, Mark Mitchell. Mark, it's good to see you, and I, I thought this was an important poll for you all to do. I was so glad that you did it, because it shows that, by and large, whether you're Republican or Democrat, you want people to get a vote, and you want that vote to be accurate, and, and, and that is still sacred to most Americans. So tell us about the context here. 
Absolutely. There's a lot of good things in here, and especially something very particular about Democrats. So as your viewers might know, we've sort of been one of the preeminent people polling on election integrity issues. We've asked upwards of 15,000 Americans now different questions about election fraud over the span of a couple cycles. And I could say that it appears that some Democrats in the country have created a model that really sort of works for them as long as it doesn't have accountability or there isn't scrutiny. And unfortunately for them, 94% of voters are at least somewhat closely watching news about the Senate elections. So the eye is very much on what is going on in Arizona. Now, a couple other numbers before we get started on this. 49% of voters are concerned about cheating in this mid in the midterms. That was asked right before the election. And 59% is the highest number we've ever seen of voters thinking it's likely there's cheating in election. So now taking a look at that first question, uh, 71% of voters say it's very likely that cheating affected the outcome of the Senate elections in Arizona. That is an absolute step change in public opinion on cheating. We've gone up, uh, I mean, 12 points in, in people that think there's cheating. And keep in mind, that question also says Republicans in Arizona have said there's problems with the election. So that's independents and Democrats are agreeing, like very likely that cheating affected the Republicans there. So now looking at the party numbers, um, it's actually pretty bipartisan. So the, the total of people that at least somewhat agree, for Republicans, it's 79%. For independents, it's 68%. And for Democrats, it's 65%. So nearly two-thirds of Democrats agree that cheating likely affected Republicans in Arizona. Now, the difference is that Democrats are less likely to say very likely. Only 23% of them say very likely. Uh, and But also only 20% say it's not at all likely. So, I mean, that's the, the, the most I've ever seen Democrats agree that cheating is affecting, like in a tangible way, not in some, you know, nebulous way. It's, a, it's affecting these elections. Uh, so now the, the other question, do you agree or disagree with, with that statement about election fraud? Uh, you know, so 72% of voters agree with that statement. And, and the headline here is, we, we didn't say it in the question, but that's a Carrie Lake statement. 72% of voters agree with Carrie Lake on this concept of election integrity. Uh, once again, party numbers, absolutely fascinating. It's 78% of Republicans, what's that, 69% of Democrats, though. Now, only 35% of them strongly agree with Carrie Lake, but that's still an absolute massive number. So uh, about Democrats and about election fraud, and, and it's like we know that looking at the signs of election fraud, that they all appear to go one way. But it isn't fair to say of Democrat voters that they like election fraud, they hate it just as much as anybody else. When we've asked the questions, it's upwards of 90% of Democrats who say, uh, no, it's important to prevent cheating in elections. Where they differ is when you ask questions, what's more important? Is it more important to make sure everybody votes or is it more important to prevent cheating in elections? And there, Republicans and independents absolutely say it's more important to prevent cheating in elections. They don't mind if there's a chance of a certain group of people getting disenfranchised. But Democrats, far and away, say it's more important to, to make sure everybody votes. And, and what's fascinating is people who've been disenfranchised in the past, like like black voters, don't really necessarily even agree with Democrats in that, in the, in that case. But here is an example where Republican voters potentially were disenfranchised. And Democrats see it and agree that it's a problem. That's just fascinating and absolutely new. 
And I think this is important to note. I think it's important for officials in Arizona to see this polling because, you know, we've seen similar problems in other states, but maybe not the public sentiment around doing something about it or feeling that it was wrong. So I think in Arizona, there could be a real chance to address some of these major problems, even though officials clearly, by and large, are not doing so. We're continuing to watch that situation. And, and you know, Mark, I, I thought this was, like I said, a great poll to do because I did keep seeing on social media some people, Democrats, about Democrats saying, look, I didn't vote for Carrie Lake, but I don't think this is right. This is very problematic. So I think that at least is positive in a step possibly towards change. And Mark, you know, I also would love to have seen um, the public opinion about a possible redo election because that was one of the ideas that were thrown out there. It's probably a little late in the game now for that, but I really appreciate this polling. This is great. Well, we Thank ask you. questions every night, so we're gonna, I'll put that one on the list. So. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Great. Thank you. Good to see you, Mark. Good to see you too. Speaking of elections, early voting is already underway in Georgia for the December 6th runoff. How's it going so far? We'll get an update from the Peach State after the break. Early voting is currently underway in the December 6th Georgia runoff election, and it supposedly already set a record. Interim Deputy Secretary of State Gabriel Sterling announced that Georgia has broken its record for the most ballots cast in a single day during early voting with 300,000 Georgians voting on Tuesday. That's a huge jump from the old record, which was 233,000 votes in a day. It shows excitement about the race. It's a Senate race and we anticipate that. And then the lines today and the turnout today has been tremendous. Now, early voting turnout was the highest in Fulton, Gwinnett, and DeKalb counties. You can vote in this election if you were registered to vote by November, November the 7th, even if you didn't vote in the general election, and a photo ID is required to vote. But keep your eye on Georgia, especially Fulton County. Bridget Thorne won her race for Fulton County Commissioner. She wrote online that some polling places are understaffed with only two poll workers working the check-in area. This is creating long lines, like here at the Milton Library. Additionally, Georgia is using those same pesky voting machines that Arizona used. Dominion serves all of Georgia's counties. I mean, what could possibly go wrong, right? Join me now is David Cross from Election Truth in Georgia. His team is a group of concerned citizens who investigate election fraud claims in the Peach State. And David, you all have really been on the forefront. And what you've done in Georgia has helped other states in, in putting together hard evidence. Everything you all do is so well documented. So I want to talk about, first off, thank for being here, uh, but I want to talk about this early voting. Whenever we have these record numbers, we usually see problems, especially when you're talking about those three counties, right? So tell me what, what you're seeing on the ground. You know, what, what I'm seeing on the ground here is that there, there, there are some polling locations that have got um, that have got long lines and others that don't. And I've also seen people that have, you know, volunteered to, you know, to help out. And, and then their social media is being monitored. And if they mention anything about election integrity, um, they end up they end up being told, oh, you can't you can't work. You can't work in this election cycle and, and they're excluded. So there there's just we've got the same shenanigans that, that we had before. And, you know, people talk about, you know, the ACLU and, and, and all these other groups talk about voter suppression. And I think what we're actually seeing is, is voter suppression across everywhere. It doesn't matter if, if you're a minority or if you are the enemy, a middle-aged white guy. 
So, I mean, it's just that's where we're at right now, and it's a it's a yeah. it's a total farce. People believe, people truly believe that we are still in the era of you know elections working the way that that, that they saw them on you know Schoolhouse Rock when they were growing up, and the government is just there to help you, and. Yeah. It's not, and, and we're we're in a situation right now where you know Ronald Reagan said it best: you have to trust but verify. And at at this point right now, nobody's verifying any information um, that's going into the Secretary of State system. Yeah, and that's a big problem. There, there's been just so many problems in Georgia recently. Also, there was the story over in Cobb County, Georgia, where. Um, Poll workers coincidentally discovered a memory card with uncounted ballots for the Kennesaw City Council special election. Madeline Orochino was originally declared the winner, but after this memory card showed up, Lynette Burnett is now considered the winner. I don't, I'll, you know, in full disclosure, I don't know a lot about this race. It's a very small, you know, local race that I didn't know a lot about, but I do know that this has happened before. It happened in Virginia. Uh, where a memory card shows up after the fact and completely reverses uh, the results of the election. So what do you know about this situation, David? It's just repeating. I mean, we, we saw this in we saw this in Floyd County in 2020. We saw this in Gwinnett County in 2020. We saw this in DeKalb County this year. You know, I'm I'm at the point right now where I was thinking about like when I when I first voted and w walked into a polling place, somebody's grandma was there with a notebook and you know and checking my name off you know off of a paper list with with their pencil, and you know and then telling me I could I could go vote. You know, I trust that system. I trust tenth graders to count our votes more than more than I trust these machines because these machines have got at least in Georgia the way things are set up is when when you go in. You're using something called a ballot marking device, and that sounds really, you know, cool and 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 technologically proficient, all that kind of thing. But but the reality is, is that a ballot marking device in Georgia, where you're touching the screens, that was designed to 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 enable handicapped people to be to be able to vote more efficiently. And we're using them across the state of Georgia. So when you go vote, what's happening is you touch what's on the screen. The machine interprets what you're touching on, on, you know, on the screen before it then encodes your vote into a into a QR code, which you can't read, and there's no commercial devices that you can use to read it because when you're voting, you can't turn your phone on so you can actually see what that QR code says, even if you had a device that could read it. So you're picking your candidates. The machine yeah. is is making an interpretation. Then your interpretation is encoded into a QR code. It's printed on a piece of paper, and then when you go feed that ba that ballot into the third machine, the third machine has to unencode the QR code to figure out what you. There's just there's too many there's too many opportunities for errors and for computer errors and for human error and for malicious behavior. It's just it, it's I, I just think it's a yeah and there's. Yeah, and there's actually a, a, a hearing today in Bull. I was going to say there's actually a hearing today in Bullock County uh, regarding the, specifically the barcode issue because citizens want an injunction against using those barcodes so that people know what they voted. Um, I do want to go to the voter rolls because this is also a very important aspect of, of voter fraud that doesn't get as much attention, I think, as it should. And you brought this to the forefront uh, recently in a tweet. You had the courage to ask, and you shared 
you know, a picture of the data saying, why are voters being removed from the Georgia voter history files? Are these people that have moved or passed away? What is going on here, David? You know, to, to this day, if, if you go back and pull the voter history file from 2020, you'll find out that it was that it was being edited even, you know, you know, six months ago. Why on earth is a historic document of, of an event that happened in the past? Why is that being edited? I mean, I understand that we have to keep our voter rolls, you know, current and up to date and accurate and that kind of thing. But you don't go back and change a record for something that has already happened. Yeah. That's over and done with. I, I don't understand it, and and we've you know we've um, we've we've sent in requests to the Secretary of State's office to you know to freeze that data, and they might as well give us the middle finger. Yeah, they kind of keep doing that. Um, we are out of time, but I want to let people know we had John Vieira on last week with his Votify Now app. I understand that people are are trying to use that now in Georgia as this early vote is underway and as part of the the runoff election. So if people in Georgia, if you're seeing something, go to Votify now. It's on the App Store. Download it. You can sign up. You can you know you can remain anonymous if you want to and report what you're seeing. And uh, you know we talked to John about it and how it works. So this is a tool that can be used. And uh, David, real quick before I let you go, tell us where people can find you all and your work and help support you as well, because I mean, it's not easy what you're doing. No, no, it's not. So, I, and I really appreciate it. So, one one of the things I tell people is that anybody that's out there that wants to help us, God gave us, you know, three things: either time, talent, or treasure. And if you've got talent, then I, you know, please go to, you know, please go check us out at um or, or please contact me at dcross108 at protonmail.com i'll get you plugged into to different folks you can also look at voter ga and you can you can help support us by going to give send go and looking for election oversight we're raising money to be able to help support um you know to, to be able to support some of the legal action that's going on right now and we're actually working on our own legal challenges right now and they're not cheap and we need every bit of help that we can get but we also understand that some people don't have a, a lot of money to give um, five dollars, ten dollars is you know is anything that that's possible. It just it doesn't matter. Do your part. Become a patriot. Yeah, and you've self-funded the bulk of this, so we appreciate you coming on, sharing this with us, David, and uh, we'll check back in with you in a couple days. Awesome. Thank you. Today on the Matt Wall Show, Democrats in the Senate sign religious liberties death warrant with twelve Republicans obediently going along with it. Yesterday was, we're told, an historic day in the U.S. Senate, a landmark occasion with 61 votes, including every Democrat plus 12 obsequious, pathetic, lickspittle Republicans. The Senate officially passed the inaptly named Respect for Marriage Act. And the bill will, of course, repeal the Defense of Marriage Act, codify gay marriage into law at the federal level, officially redefining marriage and reshaping it in the image of left-wing ideology. And despite assurances from the aforementioned obsequious, pathetic lickspittles, it will, in fact, set the stage for an all-out assault on religious liberty across the entire country. Now, there can only be two reasons for legislation like this to be introduced in the first place, and um, that's one of them, to destroy religious liberty. It's why Democrats were celebrating the bill as a consequential moment in American history. Here's Senator Tammy Baldwin yesterday afternoon after the bill was passed talking about how historic it all is. A lot of people have asked me in recent days what the passage of this historic bill would mean to me as a member of the LGBTQ plus community. 
What I said to people who asked me a similar question back in 2012 when I was first elected to the United States Senate still rings true today. I didn't run for the Senate to make history. I ran for the Senate to make a difference. And we are not pushing this legislation to make history. We are doing this to make a difference for millions upon millions of Americans. Um, it's a historic day. Sorry, I should have specified. Tammy Baldwin actually argues that the bill does not make history, but it is historic. What, what exactly is the distinction here? This is like the, the greatest humble brag I've ever heard. You should try that in a, in a job interview, maybe. You know, I'm, uh, I'm not interested in making history. I just want to make a difference. What actually is the difference? What is, what's the difference between making history and being historic? There really isn't one, but Democrats are simply determined to never speak clearly about anything. They are allergic to clarity, it would seem. And yet, in spite of the obfuscation, it's clear what is actually happening here. As I said, there are only two reasons why this bill was written, introduced, and now passed and will certainly be signed by, uh, by Biden. The first reason is to virtue signal, you know, and to give Democrats something to do that doesn't involve solving any of the many actual problems that we face as a country. This is reason enough to oppose the bill also, and it ought to have been reason enough for every Republican to vote against it. Because even if you agree with the Democrats on the subject of marriage, you should still see this bill at the very best as in some ways similar to, say, the anti-lynching law that Biden signed last year. In that case, I, of course, agreed with the Democrats that lynching is bad, but I opposed the law because lynching is already illegal, it's already a felony, and it's already a hate crime. So before Biden signed the bill, anyone who lynched a black person would be certain to spend the rest of his life in federal prison. After the bill, anyone who lynches a black person is certain to spend the rest of his life in federal prison. Nothing has changed. The bill was a waste of time designed to help generate the false impression that Democrats in D.C. are actually working to solve problems when, in fact, they aren't working on solving any real problems at all. In a similar way, the so-called Respect for Marriage Act was pushed through in response to a totally imagined threat. The backers of the bill have imagined a hypothetical scenario where some undetermined, unspecified state somewhere passes a law banning same-sex marriage, and then that law is up upheld by a federal court, and then it winds its way through the court system and, uh, and ends up at our nation's highest court, where a majority of justices side with the unknown state and gay marriage is overturned. Every part of that scenario is a fantasy. No part of it will actually happen. There is no state in the union attempting to ban same-sex marriage. There is no federal court that would uphold such a law. And there's only one, maybe two, but certainly not a majority in the Supreme Court that would side with the state in such a situation anyway. So this law to begin with is not needed. And therefore, again, at the very best, it's designed to give Democrats an opportunity to stand in front of the press and congratulate themselves on a historic victory over an imagined enemy. They are once again solving a made-up problem because they don't have the interest or the will or the ability to solve any of the real problems. And in fact, most of the real problems they don't even see as problems. And that's the first problem. And that's, so that, that's issue number one here. But it's worse than that because I wish the legislation was merely pointless. I wish that it was merely meant to virtue signal. It was merely a waste of time. 
But it is, in fact, far more troubling than that. As it turns out, the law will accomplish something. Namely, it will accomplish the further destruction and degradation of religious liberty and free speech in the United States. And if you were among the oblivious conservatives who didn't see this or understand it before, hopefully you've now been jolted awake by the fact that three attempts to include amendments protecting religious liberty all failed. Okay, there were attempts to put religious liberty amendments on this thing, guaranteeing that religious liberty would not be, uh, this bill would not be used to attack religious liberty, and all those amendments failed. Reading from the Daily Wire, it says, Oklahoma Republican Senator James Langford, who proposed an amendment addressing religious liberty concerns, warned that the language fails to place any restrictions which would cause entities such as nonprofits or faith-based organizations to choose uh, not to provide those services or to abandon their faith. Quote, I encourage everyone in this body to ask a very simple question to themselves. Is today about respecting the rights of all, Langford said on the Senate floor, or is it about silencing some? Senator Mike Lee called on his Republican colleagues in favor of the legislation to include protections for anyone with a religious belief or moral conviction that marriage belongs to one man and one woman. Lee introduced an amendment prohibiting federal bureaucrats from discriminating against individuals, organizations, and other religious entities by stripping away tax-exempt status, licenses, contracts, or other benefits. Quote, instead of subjecting churches, religious nonprofits, and persons of conscience to undue scrutiny or punishment by the federal government because of their views on marriage, we should make explicitly clear that this legislation does not constitute a national policy endorsing a particular view of marriage that threatens the tax-exempt status of faith-based nonprofits, he wrote. As we move forward, let us be sure to keep churches, religious charities, and religious universities out of litigation in the first instance. But neither Langford Lee or Senator Mark Rubio's amendment to the bill passed. So that tells you what you need to know. There were multiple attempts to add specific, strong, clear language guaranteeing the religious rights of individual Americans, and those attempts were all rebuffed. Here is uh, Senator Lee explaining more about the purpose of his amendment. Listen. In the hope that we can come to a place where we respect each other, I have offered an amendment to this legislation that would explicitly minimize the threats to these religious organizations and individuals. I'm at the table. I'm willing to compromise. And in the spirit of compromise, I've publicly stated, and I reiterate here again today, that I will support the legislation if my amendment is adopted. My amendment simply prohibits the federal government from discriminating against schools, businesses, and organizations based on their religious beliefs about same-sex marriage. That's all it does. My amendment prevents the Internal Revenue Service, among other things, from revoking the tax-exempt status of these charities and organizations simply because they act according to their beliefs about the divine purpose of marriage. It prevents the Department of Education from targeting schools with honor codes based on the fact that they've got provisions in their honor codes based on religious beliefs. It protects individuals from being denied business licenses or grants or other statuses based on their views about marriage. It protects Americans who wish to add, who wish to act according to their religious beliefs from being forced to abandon their God-given mandates to love, serve, and care for the poor, the orphan, and the refugee. If we allow the government to threaten their ability to do so, then the religious liberty of every American is in peril. Well, that argument was not persuasive to those assembled. That amendment failed. 
We're told that the amendments weren't needed because the so-called Respect for Marriage Act already protects religious liberty, and that, of course, is a lie. Here's what the bill actually says on the subject of religious liberty. Here's what it says. Here's the language in the bill. It says, diverse beliefs about the role of gender in marriage are held by reasonable and sincere people based on decent and honorable religious or philosophical premises. Therefore, Congress affirms that such people and their diverse beliefs are due proper respect. Well, that means exactly nothing. Notice how it does not specify, it doesn't mention uh, any specific belief about marriage. It doesn't, doesn't say anything that, you know, belief in traditional or biblical or man-woman marriage. Uh, no, no word like that or term like that is used. It only says that diverse beliefs are due respect. Which beliefs? And what does due respect even mean? I mean, we don't need the law to grant vague and unspecified respect to certain beliefs. Yes, people are, people are free to believe whatever they want. So when you hear from a government, you know, uh, from, from these people, oh, you could, oh, we're not going to stop you from believing what you want to believe. Well, I know that because you can't stop me from believing something, even if you wanted to. And I think you do want to. Because a belief is something that I carry around in my head and in my heart. There's no law that can govern that directly. So the issue isn't belief per se, but action. The government must protect your right, not simply to believe what you want to believe, but to live out and act out your faith. And this is precisely what the bill does not protect. It's what the amendments that were voted down were supposed to protect, but the bill does not. Also, note that the supposed religious liberty protections in the bill only apply to religious institutions like churches, allegedly protecting their right to not directly participate in the solemnization of a same-sex marriage. I'm skeptical that those protections will be meaningful in practice, but they also don't include the people who actually need the protections. As recent history shows, the left is far more interested in imposing its will on small-town bakers and photographers and florists who prefer not to lend their services to gay weddings. But a bakery is not a religious institution. And yet the baker still has First Amendment rights, or at least he ought to. You shouldn't need to work for a religious institution in order to have the right to live and operate according to your religious beliefs. In fact, if you're only allowed to live by your religious beliefs at church, then you don't have religious liberty at all. And that is the goal here. The left's goal is to contain religious expression, relegate it to certain assigned areas, and then once it's been entirely walled in, that's when they set out to eradicate it completely. This is how it has always worked historically. And now we're seeing it play out again. Well, the... Uh, so-called Respect for Marriage Act, a massive defeat uh, you know, in the legislature, a massive defeat culturally as well. That's, that's what it is. There's just no way around it. And don't listen to any conservative who says, oh, it's, not, it's okay. It's no big deal. Because these are very often the same exact conservatives that uh, every single massive defeat conservatives have suffered. They're the ones saying, yeah, it'll be fine. No, it's not fine. We didn't need that anyway. Religious liberty, what do you need that for? They said you could still have it at church. Just go to church and have all the religious liberty you want inside those walls. Until a few years from now when the government comes along and says, you know what? Uh, no, no, you know, 
people have the, the human God-given right to, uh, a man has a, a, a human right, this is a basic human right that a man has to marry another man. And who are you, even in a church, to de- deny someone their human rights? So that's the argument that, we'll, that we are going to start hearing. And then when we start hearing that argument, and they actually move finally in a really serious way against the churches, these same conservatives again will say, well, it's fine anyway. It's, you know, used to, in your home at least. What do you need to gather together for to express your religious faith? Okay, just stay at your home. There's Zoom church. You can do it on Zoom. Well, no, you, can't, you don't have access to Zoom anymore because we took that away because it's, they're not going to let you use it for those, for those bigoted purposes. They just, so just stay at your house. Gather together in your home. Not too many of you, just, just individual families. That's a defeat. Um, 